Thanks. I thought that'd be better down here. I'm not sure who it is. Let me just get set up. There's um, a couple of things for me to say. Yesterday was a, a very busy day in the life of our church. Um, we had a world-focused prayer team in the morning, as Lee said to you, and that was followed by our church fortnightly prayer meeting, and that was a good time, apparently. Um, and then last night we had a making men's breakup dinner where there were lamb shanks and chicken breast. You had a choice, plus an entree, plus dessert. It was outstanding, wasn't it? It was very, very good. I think our chef is with us tonight, is he? I saw him before. There he is, down the back. Rod Smith. Give him a clap, everybody. That boy knows how to cook. He is a chef, or he was a chef. He's not a chef now, which is always a worry. Um, but last night, I had to leave early because I had a pastoral phone call that I had to make interstate. Somebody was ringing me about a pastoral reference, and I said, I'll ring you back at 8 o'clock, which was 9 o'clock for them. And so I said, OK, I need to leave by 8. Uh, dessert was being served at about 8, so I missed my dessert. Rod, I missed my dessert. Don't know what you can do about that. Uh, nothing. Uh, all those in favour who think I need the dessert, the Lord bless you abundantly. I'm sure they put it away too. Yeah. Um, but then apparently after I'd gone, I had several texts from several different people that certain photos were shown. Me and a maroon Guernsey. Me on a... Oh, here we go. I just want to say, we are a church that stands for truth, and that is a lie. And tonight we're going to talk about what do you do when people spread rumours about you and say all manner of false things. What do you do? Well, the passage tonight addresses that very issue for us. It says, be patient, brothers and sisters. The Lord is coming, and he will deal with um, sinners. <laughs> Go on, show the rest. Get out of your system. Somebody said to me, it wasn't you, because you look too buff. <laughs> oh, look, I've got tats. I've always wanted tats. And I've got a burger while I'm surfing. So I assume that's Wazza. Probably. Next. No, that's it. Ah. Good grief. I didn't see these last. I saw them on my phone. I think there's a theme. Well, you're a computer expert, Josh. You would know why that is. Another lie. A light-hearted lie. I wonder how... No. No, I did. Sometimes you can lie 
to save people, to help people, to... That'll do. (laughs) Before I pray, there's something I want you to learn tonight, and this is it. When God ripens apples, he's never in a hurry, and he never makes a noise. When God ripens apples, he's never in a hurry, and he never makes a noise. I want you to turn to the person beside you, and I want you to repeat that to them. Okay? When God ripens apples, he's not in a hurry, and he does... You are saying a lot more than what I said for you to say. Obviously, we're not talking about apples tonight. We're talking about being mature followers of the Lord Jesus. When God wants to make mature Christians, he's not in a hurry, and he doesn't make a noise. But he's committed to the process. In fact, Romans 8.29 says, He has predestined us. The sovereign almighty God, predestined, has foreordained, is working history out so that we mature in Jesus. And sometimes through maturity, it's through difficult circumstances. And so God will allow difficult circumstances in our lives. And this passage tonight tells us, God tells us, how do you handle trouble? How do you handle difficulties? How do you handle it when you're on the receiving end of something that you don't think is fair? What do you do? We're going to pray and then we'll jump in. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is true and powerful. And we are privileged and blessed to be exposed to it. And we pray tonight that through this simple but very powerful portion of your word that you would minister truth to us that you would change our or correct or strengthen our thinking according to your word and that you might even be pleased lord to deal in our hearts our emotions on these sorts of issues we know that you're a god of compassion a god of mercy and a god of great patience help us to duplicate to replicate to represent you So, Lord, speak to us, I pray, tonight, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Winston Churchill once said, there's a whole list of quotes from him, uh, quite a witty guy, and I don't want to be distracted by some of the great things he said, but he said this, I shared it with Kraft a few weeks ago, all of life, he said, is about change or acceptance. If you can't accept something, change it. And if you can't change it, accept it. It's witty and wise, isn't it? And true. Life is about change, and there are some things that need to change, and there are some things that we can't change, and we just have to accept it. It doesn't do us any good. We live in an age where the catchword of our society is the word instant. What James talks about tonight with patience, that's become an endangered species, along with civility or gentleness or honesty. It's fast disappearing. Ever heard of a thing called fake news? It's now part of our world, isn't it? But we want instant, instant access, instant credit, instant communication, instant gratification. When you go to the supermarket and you line up, what do you do? I bet you do what I do. I used to go looking for the shortest line. I've given up. Now go to self-serve. Do it myself. 
get straight in and through. What we want, we want now. We're not a patient society. But some things in our life and world refuse to come in a hurry. That's the reality. I wonder if you can think of some things. Trees don't come in a hurry. Gardens don't come in a hurry. The best wines don't come in a hurry. Learning a language certainly doesn't come in a hurry. A rewarding relationship doesn't come in a hurry. I've been married for 42 years and at last I'm finally happy. She doesn't listen. Yes, it's a lie. She, she doesn't listen to the podcast. It's quite safe as long as nobody says anything. Can I trust you? Yeah. You can see I'm going to be paying for that one. Oh, let me reverse it. She's finally happy. Oh, that makes... Yeah, thanks. Lasting relationships take time. Take work. And so does gaining wisdom and maturity. You cannot put an old head on young shoulders. You cannot do it. Young people, I was once one of them. You think you know, but you don't. You think this is the right thing. And you'll do what I did. You think this is the best way to go, but you make mistakes. That's part of maturing. It's part of growing up. You've got to make mistakes, you've got to have experiences, you've got to grow in wisdom, you have to grow in patience, you grow in maturity. When God makes apples, he's not in a hurry and he doesn't make a noise, but he's at work and he matures apples and us. We cannot grow and reap in the same day. Before I jump into this passage, there's a couple of things I want to say. Number one, we've got some stuff going on in our church at the moment, we all know that, well most of us know that. So you could be here tonight and you could be hurting and or struggling with some issues, whether it's that one or whether it's something else in your life personally. And when somebody comes to you and they mean well, but they don't do well, when they say to you when you're hurting, Romans 8.28, which says, well, it either says all things work together for good to those who love God, or it says God is at work for, in all things um, for those who love him, achieving his purposes. God is sovereign and he is at work. But being told that when you're hurting and struggling is sometimes like vinegar. It's not like medicine. But when the Holy Spirit says it to you, when he opens the eyes of your heart or your mind, and gives you one, then it is like medicine. He comforts you with, I'm in this, I'm in control. I'm listening. I care. So tonight I invite you to listen to what God says in this passage. But listen especially for what God will say to you in your heart. That's the second thing I want to say. The Holy Spirit wants to change our thinking. That's where he aims. We want to change our feelings. We want the pain and the struggle to stop. We want to feel better. But the way for us to feel better is to think correctly. It's wrong thinking which produces bad emotions. And because we live in a fallen, sinful world, we often, me included, often, we respond emotionally and wrongly. And it takes time to get through that. So in this passage, James has written, in verses 1 to 6, chapter 5, he's written about, I think they're Christians, this is of course disputed, but let's say they're, they're part of the church, he's writing to the church, and some of the Christians in the church are rich, filthy rich. But the reason they're rich is because they're ripping off the poor ones. They're not doing the right thing by them. And James writes and warns them. 
Now he shifts focus from the rich ones and he shifts to the poor ones, the ones who are on the receiving end of the abuse, of the persecution, of the wrong thing being done to them. He wants to condemn them, but he wants to comfort these guys. But it's interesting, in both passages, he warns them. He warns the rich who are doing the wrong thing, and he warns the poor who are doing the right thing, but he warns them. He commends them in verse 6 that they have not resisted, they have not retaliated when wrong things are being done to them. That's commendable. But then he writes to them because he is aware that it's hard not to react. When wrong things happen, when wrong things are done, we lose patience with a situation with people and sometimes even with God. James recognises that danger and therefore he exhorts us as followers of Jesus, be patient, endure. Many Greek scholars want to argue in this passage that the word patience is to do with difficult people, be patient with difficult people and endure difficult circumstances. And generally, there's two different Greek words, that's how they are used. But in this passage, James, just to torment the Greek scholars, uses it interchangeably. Talks about just being patient with people or with circumstances. But he does use consistently and to endure bad situations. That's his directive that we need to hear tonight. And he does it by influencing our thinking. He gives five, six, depends how you add them up. You could make it eight. I started with four, I ended up with six, so let's see how many we end up after tonight. If we put up um, verse seven, thanks. Verse seven says, be patient. There are three things he says, be patient. The Lord is coming and think about the farmer. So firstly, be patient. What does patience mean? It means that we are long-suffering, that we are long-tempered. That's literally what the Greek word means. Just as God deals patiently, is long-suffering with difficult people, so we as followers are to do likewise. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Patience. This long-suffering and self-control. What is patience? I wrote that. This is my definition. Patience is a gracious tolerance of another's blunders or mistakes or hurt directed at you that gives time before responding. Impressed? It's a calm, uncomplaining endurance, the dictionary says. It's a quiet perseverance. It's the opposite of impatience, which is not bearing with, you're restless, you want to do something, you react rather than respond. Patience responds. It's calm, it's considered. It doesn't mean resignation to a no response, but it means a controlled, loving, gentle response as we grow in following Jesus. So before we move on into the rest of the verse, on a scale of 1 to 10... How would you rate your patience level? I, it's sometimes difficult to measure these things, but I reckon I can notice an increase in patience in my life over the years. And you know where my number one frustration 
with impatience is. Where is it? On the road. With the idiots who don't know how to drive properly. You're not supposed to say yet, sorry. With the more, you're not supposed to say that either. With the people who just don't, they're just inconsiderate. But today, driving home, noticed my tyre was a little bit down. I thought I'd better check that. Went to the garage. There was a gentleman who got to the water and air station before me, and so I had to wait patiently. <laughs> and I did. And now I am so proud <laughs> that I was patient. Why should we be patient? Verse 7 says, because the Lord is coming. Our oppressions, our difficulties, our troubles won't always be like this. They will not go on indefinitely. Why? Because Jesus is coming. What does that mean? Well, it either means in the New Testament, it often and usually means, and you probably are thinking right now, he's coming at the end of time. Well, it certainly does mean that. When he comes to the end of time, then it's game over. Then there's a great gathering together of believers and then there's a great separation between believers and unbelievers and then there's a great judgment and a great evaluation. James will talk about that judgment three times in this passage. But the New Testament also talks about a time when Jesus comes, not at the end of the world, but in our time. Revelation 3, behold I stand at the door and he comes. He walks among the churches, he comes. Peter talks about the day of visitation. And when Jesus comes in that sense of he draws near to his people and to his church, it's either with a view to strengthen and bless or it's with a review to evaluate and to judge. He comes. The Lord is coming. Be patient. Jesus heard these guys, verse 4 of chapter 2, He's heard your prayers, he's heard your groans, he's heard your cries. He's coming. If not in time, then certainly at the end of time. Romans 8 verse 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. That's the perspective, the thinking that we have to remind ourselves of and have. Paul says again, 2 Corinthians 4 17, this momentary and light affliction, that's how he describes it. But when you read what he was experiencing, you wouldn't describe it that way. This momentary and light affliction produces in us an eternal weight of glory. God allows us to go through difficulties because he's maturing us, but he's also strengthening us in order to bless us. He's got another agenda how you handle problems how you handle frustrations will have an impact upon your eternal reward be patient james says and peter in fact says 1 peter 1 6 to 7 that when jesus comes back there will be praise and glory and honor not for him but for those of us who have endured patiently wow God is at work. Jesus is coming. Be patient. It won't always be like this. In verse 7, James goes on to say, have a look at the farmer. He waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains, for the first, the early and the latter rains. What's the point? 
Well, James is saying we need to be like the farmer. We need to be patient. Let God do his work. The farmer does his work. He prepares the soil. He burns off the crops and the last year's remains and the weeds. He ploughs the soil. He waits for the first rain, October, November, around about this time of the year. When it comes, he plants. And then he waits. Then there's a whole lot of rain in the middle, but he waits for the latter rains, which come in like April, May, later on, which ripen the crop. He waits. What can he do when he has ploughed? He has to wait. God has to do something, send the rain. When he's planted the seed, what can he do? Nothing. He has to wait for God to do what God does. And then when the rain comes, then he does his bit again. There is this balance, this dance between we've got to do what we have to do. Be patient, endure, be committed to doing the right thing and let God do what he does. And don't take matters into our own hands. That's what James, I think, is saying. The farmer does his bit, God does his bit. Seasons come and seasons go. I'm going to be here till midnight, I'm sure. I've told this story a couple of times, but I love this story. Back in the 1937 to 1946, World War II, the Japanese invaded China. When they invaded China, the Chinese government sent um, army recruiters out into the various provinces looking for able-bodied young men, teenagers and older but able-bodied to recruit them to an army to defeat the invading Japanese. They came to one particular province and there was a gentleman and he had a son, one son, um, whom they would have recruited. Before the army, before the recruiters came, the man had a horse, just one horse, just a farmer, and he only had one horse. Horse escaped. Put up your hand if you've heard me tell this story before. A couple of you. Or you know the story. Horse escaped. Neighbour came around and the neighbour said, oh, that's bad. That's terrible. You've lost your only horse. What are you going to do now? The farmer says wisely. <clears throat> is it good or is it bad? I don't know. Let's wait and see. A few days later, that horse that escaped came back with about 20 other Brumbies, wild horses. And they came back and they all went into the corral. The neighbour came round and says, that's good. The farmer wisely again said, well, is it good or is it bad? I don't know. Let's just wait and see. Let God work his purposes out. The young boy got on one of those brumbers and he was uh, trying to break it in. And in the process of doing that, he fell off and he broke his leg. The neighbour came round. That's bad. That's terrible. Well, is it good or is it bad? I don't know. Let's wait and see. Then the recruiters came, and they would have recruited the young man, but when they saw that he had a broken leg, they left him, and they moved on to the next village. They came round and said, that's good. Is that good or is that bad? Who knows? Let God work it out. We are so impatient, and we want things to be fixed now, but God is working all of the angles, and he could be delaying his response to your prayers to fix this situation, whatever it is for you. Because he's either growing you or because he's doing something else in somebody else's life, in somebody else's situation, that he has to fix that or do something over there before he can respond to you. 
But be very rest assured, James will get to the point of saying to us, he is not deliberately delaying to torment you. He's delaying because he is sovereign and he understands all of the angles. He knows if I do that move on the chessboard, these are the implications. And he's got his sovereign purposes and he's working it out. So what can we do? Trust. That's what James goes on to say. Verse 8, he says, You too, brothers, like the farmer, be patient. Let God work it out. He'll bring his reign at the right time. Stand firm. What does that mean? That means to strengthen your heart. Recommit. Be determined. The word is used by Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, that he set his face to Jerusalem. I am committed to doing what God wants me to do. And he knew what lay ahead of him. He was set, firm heart, committed. And James is inviting us as followers of the Jesus to do exactly the same, to commit ourselves again to being obedient to Jesus. And he says, because the Lord's coming is near. We've touched on that and he'll do it again as well. Then he comes to verse 9. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Don't grow a grudge within you. This is not the venting thing, you know, the mouthing off and, and saying a few things. This is a more of a considered, critical, negative attack. For whatever reasons, and I'll go through some of the possible reasons at the moment, but this murmuring, grumbling and criticising is all the way through the scriptures and God always warns us about it and particularly about guarding your heart. Don't let difficulties make you bitter. Hebrews 12 verse 15. Judging others is the opposite of patience. It has no place in a disciple's life. We're not to do it. Take the log out of your own eye. Does that mean we never critique and we never come alongside somebody? No, it doesn't mean that. It means we do, but we do it gently. We do it lovingly. We do it, I want to help. I wonder what's irritating you at present. Then my question is, how are you handling it? Well, this passage outlines for us how, what we are to do. We are to manage our emotions, manage them, not suppress them manage them direct them and control them and certainly go to God and talk to him about it as we'll get to in a moment next time you jump to a conclusion we all do it ask yourself if the information you've received is true I I work very hard at this truth God showed me this a long time ago and most for much of my Christian life I have taken this mindset Do not assume the worst. Look for the best. Be optimistic. Somebody, you hear, somebody has done something wrong. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 13, that you are to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things. Look and assume and hope for, it can't possibly be that bad. Let's hope it wasn't. We are too quick to jump to wrong conclusions. Certainly be angry, and there will be situations that will make you angry, of course, but don't sin. 
direct your anger appropriately, control it. Take some time out, choose how you will respond. And above all, trust God and his timing. I came across this, uh, I think it might be helpful for you tonight. Let's think about this. Why do some people criticise? And when I say criticise, I don't mean give critiques, you know, positive, helpful feedback. I don't mean that. That's tick. Yep, let's do that. No, I mean criticise over here, the nasty, negative, attacking, you know, stuff. Why do people do that? Well, there's lots of reasons. Here are six. Some people criticise because they have critical spirits. They're just wired that way. They're negative, judgmental. They always see what's wrong. They never see what's right. They inspect for specs. Often they have unrealistic expectations and they have uninformed opinions. Driver pulled into the... Doesn't happen these days, but back in the day when I was a young person, you drive into a petrol station and somebody would come out and put the petrol in your car and they, while they do it, they would clean your windscreen. Well, one time a man who was critical-spirited, sort of a chap, always critical, always saying negative things, pulled into the garage, guy came out, filled the car, cleaned his windscreen. The guy said, the windscreen's still dirty, clean it again. So he cleaned it again. He said, it's still filled, you're pathetic, clean it again. And he cleaned it again. He said, I'm going to see your boss, you're the worst windscreen cleaner I've ever seen in my life. And as he got to get out of the car, his wife took his glasses off him. They were dirty. Not the windscreen. Sometimes, for some people, they need to change their glasses. The issue's not out there, it's in here. Some people criticise because they don't know the whole story. Proverbs 18, 17. I learned that one from Don and Gary Bates. Painful lesson but a valuable lesson. Don't jump to conclusions, listen and find out. Um, some people read between the lines and they're always jumping to the conclusions. They're very fit people, they're always jumping somewhere. <laughs> Number three, some people criticise because it makes them feel better about themselves. They could have low self-esteem or they feel threatened or whatever. They like to highlight the flaws of others, the tall poppy syndrome. Some people criticise number four because it's easier to complain about the problems than it is to solve them. We do that with the government, don't we? Politicians, bosses. Some people criticise because they just like it. I have some members of my family, older generations, not great communicators, but man, when they get on to talking about gossip of what's going wrong in people's lives, they come alive. It just lights them up. They enjoy it. It fuels them. Finally, listen to, if you haven't heard anything, listen to this one. Some people criticise because there are real faults that need correcting. The critic is not wrong. May not be saying it well or whatever, but there's, you've heard the old adage, in every criticism there is some element of truth. So listen carefully. Because God can use a critic to bring about correction and maturity in your life. Whether it's delivered lovingly to reveal something in your life, that's the biblical way. Or even if it's delivered hatefully, God can still use it to expose what's not right in your life and or situation. James says, don't grumble against one another. Why not? Because, or you will be judged. 
we as followers of the Lord Jesus will be judged. I don't have time now, but I've come across 12 things that a Christian will have to give account for on the day of judgment. Many of them are to do with our attitude and relationships with one another, how we treat other believers, how leaders use their authority, how we are faithful to the word of God or faithful to one another, how we control our old sinful nature. And there's a stack of others, 12 I've found so far. The judge is standing at the door. Imagine Jesus is standing at the door and you're mouthing off, you're complaining, you're carrying on and then it's like, oh, hello. You ever been in a situation where you've lost it and you're angry at your wife or your parents or sister or brother or whatever and suddenly there's a knock at the door or the phone rings and you're in this uncontrollable rage and when the phone rings, what is it? Hello. Hello. Suddenly in control again. I was in a situation not, not too long ago where marriage counselling situation and he lost it. He's ranting and raving. He wasn't throwing things but he wasn't far off it either. Then he calmed down. And I said that to him. You can control that. No, I can't. Yeah. You can. So can you. So can I. When you vent and become uncontrollable like that, it's because you choose to. You allow it. And you never need to. But I feel better. Yeah, but look at the mess you've made and created. Yeah. Don't grumble against one another or you will be judged. Jesus will sort it out in this life or the next The judge is standing at the door. So that should motivate us to be submissive to his will and patient with his timing. I need to hurry. Then James goes on, verse 10, and he says, a couple of examples. Consider God's servants. As an example of patience in face of suffering, consider the prophets. What did they do? They spoke in the name of God. They did what God wanted them to do, and they suffered. Sometimes that's the way it works in this world. We do exactly what God wants, and it doesn't go well. Well, what happened to them in the end? Well, James says, we count them blessed who endured and persevered. They died, but now they're in glory where they are blessed. That's the perspective we are to develop. That's our thinking. That's how we are to think about these things. The hope of future blessing should motivate us to patient endurance, looking to God and trusting him. Then he goes on for a second example, which is a remarkable example. Would you say Job was patient? I wouldn't. I would say that he persevered, and I'm glad that the NIV 2011 translation does it that way. You have seen Job's perseverance, and you've seen what the Lord finally brought about. Job certainly vented. He let fly. Did he complain? He certainly had very frank dialogue with his friends, didn't he? And it sounds like sometimes he's complaining against God, but that's okay. James says, don't complain against one another. Read the Psalms. Vent your frustrations to the Lord. Talk to him and let him work it out. Job certainly cried out to God and Job certainly remained very loyal to God 
which led to three things. Number one, it increased his blessedness. If you read the end of the book, chapter 42, you'll find out that he lived for another 140 years. Wow. He had seven sons and three daughters. And the daughters, Job 42 says, they were drop-dead gorgeous, knockouts. There wasn't any women like them in the land. And he saw the next four generations. Those people, their children, their children, and them. God blessed him at the latter end of his life because he was loyal to God and he endured, didn't give up. Maybe the highlight of the book, one of them anyways, he, he says, though God slay me, I haven't done anything wrong and this terrible stuff, is though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. He will work it out. And then, of course, the other two things that happened, not only did Job's blessedness increase, but Satan was defeated. That's an important truth. And that's what God might be doing right here, right now in your life. Frustrations and irritations. There's a spiritual battle going on. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. There's a spiritual battle. And by us choosing to be patient, to endure, to speak the truth in love, to be committed to doing what God wants us to do, Satan will be defeated. Glory to Jesus. And finally, through Job, the, second, the third thing that happened is there is more about the character of what God is like as revealed through the book of Job. My understanding is Job is the oldest book that we have. You read it and you'll have a remarkable insight into the character of God, which is where James goes. The Lord is full of compassion. He is not uncaring. He is not indifferent. He is full of compassion and mercy. You know those people that irritate you? You know those people who are doing the wrong thing? Those people who are saying the wrong thing? God is merciful. Read the book of Jonah. Lord, I'd like you to smack them. I'd like you to destroy them. I'd like you to remove them. That's not the heart of God. It's merciful. It's turning the temperature up in your life so that it can work in their life so that it can redeem them and grow you. It's working all the angles. Don't pray for justice. Pray for God's will to be done in their life. Pray for God to grow you. Let me finish by summarising all of this. The Apostle Paul reached this level of maturity in following Jesus. And this might be a good indication that, gee, we're on a journey and we've still got a ways to go. Paul reached this point in the passage 2 Corinthians 12 where he talks about, um, my grace is sufficient for you. You know, in your weakness, my power is revealed, made strong. The Apostle Paul says, therefore... In the midst of this difficulty, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions and with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He is strong. That's the goal, like Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So, trouble is inevitable in this world. How do we face trials and difficulties? Be patient. Anticipate the Lord's coming, both in time and definitely at the end of time, both to bless but also to correct. 
to judge. Remember the farmer? He does his responsibility and he's waiting for God to do his. Do the same. Remember God's servants, the prophets, called by God, did what they were supposed to do, still suffered. Understand the Lord's blessing is with those who are endure, who don't give up. Trust God's sovereign purposes like Job did. Don't grumble. Critique, evaluate, speak the truth in love, but don't become hard-hearted and antagonistic and you know, divided and divisive against your brothers and sisters or you will be judged. Consider God's character. He's a God who cares and who is merciful and let's be like him. When God ripens apples, he isn't in a hurry and he doesn't make a noise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a great passage and a difficult passage. It corrects us, but it also encourages and motivates us. Dear Holy Spirit, speak whichever part of this truth out of this passage to each of our hearts that we need to hear, what we need to deal with. We can't deal with it all, Lord, but we do want to be obedient to you. We do want to please you. Can you help us? Thank you that you are a God of compassion and mercy and that you are patient with us. Can you help us to do it better as we follow Jesus? We ask and pray in his name. Amen.